Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, and this will be broadcast number 36, and this is month number 8, and the concept was quite simply when we decided to do this last year, that we would have a live Sunday morning service, we would read the Word of God verse by verse, and we would keep it as simple as is possible, because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, for the average man or woman, on the street, not classical Greek for the scholars, but Koine Greek, and that's one of the reasons why the King James has been such a success, because the average man or woman on the street can grasp it, understand it, and memorize it. But as I said, we've covered a lot of ground over the last eight months, and last week we ended in Acts 15, which discussed at detail the first church conference, not council, and it was necessary to have a group meeting to decide about this whole issue of law and grace, circumcision, and abstaining from meats and foods, so on and so forth. My argument was last week, and I will repeat it again this morning, that what we read last time concerning all 41 verses was primarily just for the first century. Because the early church was predominantly Jewish, whereas the church today is predominantly Gentile. And yet saying that, please allow me to say this, that there are more Jews getting saved now, can I say, over the last decade, than there probably have been over the last 2,000 years. In fact, Israel is seeing a great increase uh, amongst Jewish believers coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, just last week I was reading online an article that was quite heartwarming concerning rabbis which are re-welcoming, can I say, Jesus into their fold. They are wanting to reassess him. They are wanting to... Uh, redefine his ministry for many years he was dismissed he was thrown out he was rejected but now they are looking to rediscover the lord jesus christ and if that leads to just one jew being saved that's a great miracle indeed so i think we are very much experiencing the decline now of gentile believers and the increase of jewish believers but uh, I just wanted to make that point because I think sometimes we can get into legalism. And I've been saved for 14 years now. And I've seen a lot of arguments over the years. You must do this. You must do that. You mustn't do this. You mustn't do that. Are you really saved? Are you really holy? Are you really living for the Lord? So on and so forth. And it causes a great level of anxiety. And I don't want people to read Acts 15 and think that such a text is applicable for those of us living today, if you had to spiritualize Acts 15, or if you had to teach Acts 15 from a doctrinal perspective, somewhat dangerous, I will grant you. But if you had to do that, or if you thought parts of Acts 15 were relevant for today, you'd have to go to Romans 14 and read that chapter very carefully when it speaks about putting others first, abstaining, don't abuse your liberty, don't allow those that are weak in the faith to stumble. So with those thoughts, let's start today's broadcast, if we may, from Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed. But his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were Lystra and Iconium. Timothy would be a great leader in the early church. And he saved his mother 
was saved, verse 1. His mother was a Jew, Timothy was a Jew, and also Timothy's grandmother was saved as well. But his father, verse 1, was a Greek, an unsaved Gentile. Probably a great burden, a yoke around his neck, which was well reported of by the brethren, in reference to Timotheus, that to Lystra and Iconium. He's got a great testimony, and a testimony is the hardest thing to achieve and the quickest thing to lose. If you've been saved for any length of time, if you've done anything in your community for any length of time, you know how easy it is to lose your testimony. But here Timothy is highly thought of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. But that's not enough. It's one thing to be saved, but on this occasion Timothy has a slight dilemma. Look at verse 3. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him, because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. This is a slightly troublesome piece of scripture, can I say, because what we are now reading opens up two questions to me anyway. Number one, was Paul right to take a saved Jew with an unsaved Gentile father and circumcise him? Was he right to do that? Secondly, if he wasn't right to do that, has he gone back to the law? Has he put this, this young man under great pressure to be circumcised? A somewhat painful procedure to go through. Or can we look back to the Old Testament when Abraham was preparing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, on the altar? And Isaac happily was going to be sacrificed by his father. Can we say Abraham pitches Paul? And can we say Isaac pitches Timothy? Two different dispensations, and yet both for the glory of God. And of course, you know back in the Old Testament that Abraham pitches God the Father, and Isaac pitches God the Son. But here, I'm just wondering, I'm just begging the question, if Paul was right, to circumcise Timothy because of the Jews, verse 3, which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek, must be very difficult for Timothy. He gets saved. He's probably around 20-ish around this time. And his mother gets saved and his grandmother gets saved. And yet he's got an unsaved father. Just a typical Greek. An unsaved Gentile who no doubt was a great burden and a sense of uh, discomfort to Timothy and co. But Timothy was willing to be circumcised like Isaac was willing to be sacrificed by Abraham. You'd also read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 how Paul was all things to all, that he might win some to the Lord. To the Jew he became a Jew, to the Greek he became a Greek. But ask yourself this, would you put yourself out for the Lord? Let's say you came from an Islamic background. Would you go the extra mile to win your family to the Lord? This goes back to Acts 15, abstain from foods, because it's causing the Jewish believers to stumble. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, deny yourself. These passages are very difficult to apply doctrinally. And yet the truth of the matter is that we have to deny ourselves. We have to put others first. And if that means denying our own liberty, then so be it. For, and as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. These decrees were mandatory. These decrees were ordained by the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Don't eat certain foods which are offered to idols. Abstain from fornication, physical and spiritual. 
because if you cause one of those that believes in me to stumble, it were better for you that you were drowned in the depth of the sea. The Lord make that very clear in the Synoptic Gospels that if you cause one of his little ones that believe in him to stumble, you are better off dead. That's how serious this is. And yet I shall repeat myself one more time that what we are reading this morning, as far as I can ascertain, is only relevant to the early church because, one more time, the early church was predominantly Jewish. And yet by the end of the first century, going to the second century, the early church will be predominantly Gentile and the Jews will become less and less uh, present, less and less involved, less and less a part of the body of Christ. But here we are, 2,000 plus years on, and as I say, it does appear to me that more Jews are coming into the fold than ever before. And yet saying that, allow me to say this very briefly, that there is a problem, and I can use that term, I think, there is a problem when the Jews get saved, because a lot of Jews that get saved, unfortunately, go into the Hebrew movements. They go into Messianic movements. And they believe that to really understand the Word of God, you have to read it in Hebrew. And I'm in the New Testament. And yet the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, not Hebrew. Now, it's true that the 2nd and 3rd century, there were Hebrew uh, New Testaments, but they were pretty rare. For the most, you've got 5,500 Greek manuscripts dating from the 1st and the 2nd century. So I am somewhat uh, concerned when I hear of Jews getting saved. On the one hand, wonderful praise the Lord. A Jew that gets saved is a complete Jew. And yet, on the other hand, if such a person joins a typical Messianic movement, the chances are they become very legalistic. They want to read the Word of God in Hebrew, Old Testament and New Testament, they want to retain the Jewish Sabbath, which of course is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, which strictly speaking is Old Covenant, not New Covenant. And on top of that, they believe you can lose your salvation. And on top of that, they believe that the Jewish absolute sign gifts are still for today. So it is somewhat troublesome when we are appraising such movements. But these decrees, 16.4, Pretty much picking it up from 1520 and 1529 are now given to the churches from Lystra and Iconium. What you got here are the apostles going out from Syria to Turkey and from Turkey to Macedonia, known today as the Balkans. Look at verse 5, please, from chapter 16. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. The early church was incredibly rich. And yet, I must say this, that what we are reading and what we've been reading over the last eight months and what we will continue to read over the next four months was just for the early church, meaning this, that you can't duplicate the early church. Some people get saved and they go back to Acts of the Apostles and they read it and they try and relive the magic. They try and relive this great atmosphere. They want to experience what we are reading, of this, we are reading about this morning. But you can't duplicate it. It's like the Garden of Eden. What you read back in Genesis was just for them. It was just for Adam and Eve. Adam named all of the animals. You won't name any animals in your life. The early church were raising the dead. You won't raise the dead. The early church were receiving progressive revelation. You won't receive progressive revelation. And on top of that, the early church wrote the New Testament. You won't write the New Testament. You might be lucky to write a, a stanza or a poem, but your writings will never be inspired. So what we don't want to do is read Acts of the Apostles and try and teach us doctrinally. You can't do it. Yes, it's wonderful what we're reading. And yes, this was the blueprint for the early church. 
And yes, this is something that is to be revered and uh, looked up to in great respect, if you will, but you can't expect churches today to duplicate what we're reading in Acts of the Apostles. This was the blueprint, this was how it was always supposed to be, and yet by the end of the first century the apostles have died out, the uh, associates of the apostles have replaced them, and you go into the second and third century and you get great apostasy. But ask yourself this, did you notice back in Acts chapter 1, when Judas hung himself, that the apostles called a conference, and did you notice that they replaced Judas with Matthias? I'm sure you did. But did you notice from Acts chapter 12, when James, the son of Zebedee, was killed, murdered, martyred by Herod, that there was no conference called to replace him? Now, did you notice that? Because if you didn't, you should have done. Because the Catholic Church teaches that the popes are the successors of the apostles. And yet, as far as I can see, you can't replace an apostle. An apostle means somebody who was sent. An apostle was somebody who walked and lived and died for the Lord. And an apostle was somebody who would write the New Testament. So that's why you don't find anybody replacing James, the son of Zebedee, in Acts chapter 12. Because you can't replace them. Now you could have associates, you could have disciples of the apostles, like Timothy, like Silas perhaps, or Polycarp, or Justin Martyr, or Irenaeus, okay, or Papias. But to replace an apostle per se is highly problematic. But it says one more time in verse 5, have the churches established in the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, and you were told in Jude to contend for that faith. You were told to fight. You were told to defend. You were told to stand up for that faith. Because if we lose that battle, we've lost it all. And they increased in number daily. What a wonderful time it must have been for such people. But look at verse 6, please. Now, when they had gone throughout Pygaia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit suffered them not. This is what we call pinpoint evangelism. And wouldn't it be great if the Holy Spirit spoke to you, or I, and said, don't go here, don't go there, but go there. But that doesn't happen. At least it doesn't happen as far as we are concerned. I've been saved 14 years, and I've been to maybe half a dozen countries since I've been saved to preach the gospel. And I've been all over my country preaching the gospel, and as... God is my witness. I've never felt the Holy Spirit tell me to go here or to go there. We were told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We were told to be ready always to give a defense of the faith that is within us. We were told to be ready in season and out of season. But here, Paul and co. are going from Syria to Turkey to Galatia, referred to at the end of verse 6 as Asia. And on they go into uh, Mysia, Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, suffers them not. He puts the brakes on. And this is very rare because, as I say, most Christians, and I would include myself now, have never been told explicitly where to preach the gospel. I've heard some people say that when they go out with tracts, they wait for the Holy Spirit to lead them. But uh, that hasn't always been my approach. I take tracts with me. And when I'm out on my travels, I give them out. And I think we need to be as active as we, as we possibly can when it comes to the Word of God. But here, 
the Holy Spirit is now restricting them. Look at verse 8. And they passed by Mysia, came down to Troas. I wonder if Troas is Luke's town. This is chapter 16 of Acts of the Apostles, and thus far we've read about Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, preaching the word of God. 3,000 get saved, then it's 5,000, then it's 8,000. We read about Stephen being martyred. We read about Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. We read about Saul of Tarsus being knocked off his horse and getting saved. And yet now, Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts of the Apostles, the fifth book of the New Testament, is about to enter the equation. He sat back for over 15 chapters, and now he has decided to introduce himself into the story, the narrative. And yes, I think Dr. Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles, and I think he was a Jew, not a Gentile, and I think he was one of the 70. That's just my own view, don't quote me, but look at verse 9, please. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia, and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. That's pretty rare. We get people contacting us every day of the week, inviting us to go to this country or to go to that country. And sometimes we have been able to do so, other times not. But here Paul has seen a vision in the night, because Paul was an apostle. You're not an apostle. So if you are of the belief that God speaks to people in an audible way, or appears to people in a visual sense, be careful, because such appearances can be of the flesh, such appearances can be from the devil, and such appearances can be from third parties. But here, this man has stood up in Macedonia, which, as I say, would be today the Balkan area, and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. The Holy Ghost put the brakes on in verse 7. That caused them to go into Troas, and from there, Paul has received a vision. The early church would experience miracles left, right, and center. But as far as I'm concerned, the greatest miracle for those of us living today is regeneration. Look at 10, please. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And after he had seen the vision, Paul, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. There's a great picture of faith, not knowing what would await them. Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So Luke joins Paul and co. You've got Silas, part of Paul's group, and you've got Timothy, verse 3, part of the group as well. 11. Therefore loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samotracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. These are real towns, which can go back and be checked. And yet, if you read the Quran, there are accounts in the Quran of parts of Arabia that Muhammad would visit, and it's very difficult to validate parts of the Quran. But here, Troas, uh, Samotracia, Philippi, Macedonia are parts of Europe, Greece, Turkey, and the modern-day Balkans. And I made the case over recent studies that if you were to go, uh, or if you were to read 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks about over 500 people seeing the risen Christ at the same time. And you could have gone and asked those people, did they really see him? And they would have affirmed that he did. And you could have gone to Philippi, 
or Macedonia, or Troas, or Neapolis, and said, Did Luke, and Paul, and Silas, and Timothy really travel to these towns and cities? And the early believers would have said, Yes, they certainly did. They spent several days with us, verse 12. We can affirm that. And yet, if you were to read the Quran, as I say, it's very difficult to validate some of the claims in that book, which I should also say wasn't written by Muhammad, because Muhammad was illiterate, but was written at least 200 years after his death. And on top of that, was written by those that didn't even know him. But let's move on to verse 13, please. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, witnessing, share the gospel. We very much believe in this ministry that it's our job to win souls to the Lord. What does it say in Proverbs 11? He that winneth souls is wise. And here you've got a group of saved Jews on the Sabbath because they are Jews. And the Sabbath was given to the Jews. have gone out of the city and have sat down by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. Now you could say that this is perhaps speaking about public prayer. But know that the Holy Ghost was behind this. And as we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Sometimes it's wise for women to witness to women, and sometimes it's wise for men to witness to men. Women should never street preach. Women should never be Bible teachers, and women should never baptize other people. I remember some years ago, uh, visiting a sanctuary in the south of England with a friend of mine at the time, and I'd been saved maybe eight months, no more than 12 months, and I was still growing as a Christian, and I went down to the sanctuary with a friend of mine at the time, as I say. And this was a very large sanctuary on a lot of ground. And it was run by an elderly woman. She's probably dead now. And she was very prominent in her community. And she had a sanctuary, as I say. And it was filled with Christians. Some burnt out, some stressed, some wanting deliverance, and some wanting to be baptized. And I hadn't been saved very long, but I knew one thing, that women in the ministry, women uh, that take it upon themselves to baptize people, to counsel other people, is highly questionable. And I said to this woman, as gently as I could, that what she was doing wasn't scriptural. And her whole demeanor pretty much changed straight away. She started off very friendly to myself and my friend, but when I started to uh, question her, she didn't like it. Well, I went home. And I thought some more about that meeting. And I put an email together to that woman at the time. And I sent it as gently as I could. Giving her some scriptures. And uh, she phoned up my friend at the time in tears. And she was accusing me of pretty much everything. Of being a legalist. Being a nice piece of work. So on and so forth. And it upset my friend. Who hadn't been saved very long either at that time. But I explained my reasons to this friend of mine. And she understood it. And she got back to this lady and said uh, that I was right to say what I had said and that we would no longer be going back to this place to visit again. So I think it's wise if you can have women witnessing to women and men witnessing to men. But here you've got a group of Jews saved on a Sabbath, no doubt witnessing to unbelieving Jews to get them saved. And on top of that, they've come across a group of women sitting by the riverside. Now these women could quite possibly be, be like uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, and Cornelius, the Roman centurion, in Acts 10. They're not far from the kingdom of God. They're searching for the Lord. 
the hearts are being prepared to receive the new birth. And I think that pretty much is what we read in verse 14, please. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of that city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. So she's searching. She is searching for the truth. And when you search for the truth, the truth searches for you. And that truth, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. But she here is named as Lydia, a seller of purple. She is a successful businesswoman of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God. She worshipped the one true God. Like Anna, perhaps, back in Luke's Gospel. Like Simeon, perhaps, back in Luke's Gospel. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, perhaps, back in Acts chapter 8. Like Cornelius, back in Acts chapter 10. So if you are searching for the Lord, if you are listening to this broadcast today on the shortwave radio or on the internet, if you're searching for him, if you're worshipping him, he will turn to you and receive you unto himself. He will send somebody to articulate the gospel to you. That's the work of an evangelist. And here he has sent, as far as I am concerned, the best of the best. Paul, Timothy, Luke and Silas. And the back end of verse 14. Whose heart the Lord opened. Sometimes Calvinists quote this piece of scripture to argue that you need to be made alive before you can be saved. The late Donald Barnhouse, a very well-known five-point Calvinist, spent years teaching that you needed to be regenerated before you could be saved. I don't believe that. I believe that although you are dead in your sins before you are quickened and made alive, you still know the difference between right and wrong. And this problem of Calvinism has caused a lot of anguish over the years, especially when it comes to one's sanctification. Are you really living for the Lord? But I don't have any problem with verse 14 when I cross open it back to Acts 8 and 10. But it does say, whose heart the Lord opened. Why did he open her heart? Because she worshipped him in verse 14. If you worshipped him before you got saved, you had an interest in him before you got saved, he will open your heart to receive more truths. And finally it says at the end of 14 one more time, how she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Like Martha and Mary... Like Lazarus, their brother, they had an open door for the Lord. They put themselves out for the Lord. And sometimes you ask yourself, how can I serve the Lord? Well, maybe you can open your house to full-time missionaries or frontline evangelists. Maybe you can go the extra mile for them. Maybe you can stand with them financially. Maybe you can pray for them regularly or fast for them or do something for them. And this woman, and read about her more next time throughout the chapters of Acts of Apostles would be a great blessing and a great member of the early church but I'm out of time for today's broadcast and uh, we've been able to cover 14 verses from Acts chapter 16 and we read about Dr. Luke entering the story and yet he disappears over the next several verses and I'll explain that more when we get to our next broadcast.